You're listening to Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with me, Melissa Gonzalez. Hello, I am Melissa Gonzalez, CEO and founder of the Lioness Group and principal at MG2. I'm here this morning for Retail with Melissa, another conversation about retail technology. Here with us today is David Sykes. He leads Klarna USA. Um, He is head of USA for them, and Klarna is one of Europe's largest banks offering direct payments, pay after delivery options, and installment payments, all in one-click purchase experience for customers. Previously, David was the Chief Operating Officer at QuadPay, another payment platform, as well as International General Manager for Crown Resorts. He has more than 10 years experience in senior executive roles across a range of industries, including online payments, gaming, entertainment, sports, and law. Before entering the payments industry, David split his time between one of Australia's largest private family offices and their major investment, one of Asia's most successfully integrated resort companies. So he is definitely somebody we are excited to hear from. And now that I've introduced David, hello, David. Uh, Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, we're excited to talk. So David, why don't you go ahead and introduce the audience to, to Klarna? Yeah, sure. So, so Klarna is a, uh, a fintech out of Europe, founded in Sweden about 15 years ago. Um, uh, uh, over the past 15 years, Klarna has grown to be Europe's uh, highest valued private fintech. Uh, we work with about 200,000 retailers around the world. Uh, we have about 85 million shoppers who use the platform. Uh, and here in the US, we're, we're growing very quickly uh, as well. So we have about 7 million customers uh, and we work with about 4,000 retailers, um, including a, a lot of very prominent uh, US retailers like H&M, ASOS, Abercrombie, uh, Bose. Um, so uh, a, a in short, we, we partner with uh, with uh, merchants and we give their customers the opportunity to have a more flexible uh, range of payment options. Great. So it's interesting that you have such a wide range. Um, you talked about some of the retailers, but what what are the sectors um, within retail that you focus? Yeah, so you sure. said fashion and what else? We're, we're we're strongest in fashion. So if you look at our 200,000 retailers, you know, the overwhelming majority would be in uh, what I'll describe as fashion, apparel, footwear, uh, cosmetics. Um, and, you know, globally, we work with brands like Nike and Adidas and uh, and Sephora, for example. Um, uh, however, uh, we're also um, uh, live with a, with a bunch of other retailers in other categories. So we work with the booking.coms of the world, the Expedia's of the world. So we're big in travel and ticketing. Uh, we're big in uh, what I'll describe as uh, homeware, um, basically every category, you know, we would have some sort of a footprint in it, but it's uh, it's clearly fashion and apparel that's sort of like um, uh, our biggest vertical by far. Do you what do you think drives these brands to use Klarna? Is it is it a certain price point threshold where it kind of becomes a little bit more of a need, um, especially? And I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of the target consumer too. Um, and why they turn to Klarna versus, say, say credit cards. So those are two questions, uh, but maybe we could start first with kind of like, is there kind of a price range or threshold where Klarna seems to be kind of a solution that's helping grow their business? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think what's interesting is when you think about, you know, 
buy now, pay later services. Um, you uh, instantly think about uh, higher ticket items uh, and spreading them over, you know, very long periods of time. So what I'll describe as sort of traditional financing, you know, you used to walk into a mattress firm and you would uh, split that mattress uh, over, you know, 12, 18 months, whatever it might be. Uh, I think what's interesting is when we look at uh, the consumers who use our products, um, they're overwhelmingly using them for everyday purchases. So uh, average order value through our platform is only $150. Um, and I think the, the unifying um, sort of characteristic of a customer who's using uh, Klarna uh, is the fact that they haven't embraced a credit card. So um, uh, the overwhelming majority of transactions on our platform uh, on any given day are actually young people using a debit card. So um, uh, they utilise our services not necessarily for the, you know, the very aspirational, you know, thousand dollar handbags uh in fact it, it could be the you know the, the 200 dollars pair of jeans um but what we see is uh, the reason they gravitate towards uh, uh solutions like ours is that they don't have credit cards they haven't embraced credit cards to the same you know extent as older older generations and so you know the, the flip side of that is brands work with us because they see this as a you know a very attractive um segment uh, of the market to to, to engage with how how do you see this evolving over the current months? So we can't have this conversation without addressing the new norm that's evolving right in um, in the world due to the coronavirus and not only shopping at home. So I'd love to see kind of what you're seeing on the e-commerce side, right? Because you guys get involved in a number of a very of a, a touch points, um, but also kind of category wise, do you see that? people are going to be leaning into kind of the staples and the necessary items and some of those discretionary items they might give more second thought to. So from your vantage point, how do you see Klarna being a partner in helping some of these brands and, and certain verticals where the consumer is going to be a little bit more hesitant um, or maybe trigger shy moving forward, given the state of things? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And I think it's changing day by day. Um, uh, we we process about a million transactions globally every day. So you've got sort of your your finger on the pulse uh, when it comes to you know what's happening from a consumer spending point of view. Um, and uh, I, I think what's interesting is when you look at China, you know, which uh, which went into lockdown, you know, mid January. Um, uh, they uh, a couple of weeks ago released their first you know set of economic data. Uh, and what I found interesting was physical retail was down substantially. Physical retail had dropped about twenty percent. Um, online retail had only dropped about 3%. Um, so, you know, uh, quite resilient. Um, and interestingly, when we look at spending patterns throughout platform, we're actually seeing something similar, which is uh, there are certainly categories like ticketing and travel, which are down significantly, not, not unsurprisingly. But uh, other categories like, uh, like fashion and apparel have actually been, you know, very, very resilient. Uh, and, uh, you know, our thesis for why that is the case is that aggregate spending uh, uh, is down, but enough of that spending has shifted from you know the physical retail world to online to basically keep some you know um, robustness in online sales, uh, and I actually think that's going to have some you know interesting implications for um, uh, long term spending habits. You know my, my my suspicion is if you look at the last two three four weeks, I think there's a large number of consumers, for example, who probably ordered groceries online for the first time. Um, and I think for a lot of those consumers, they probably found it a, a an easier uh, and a more convenient service than perhaps they had expected to. You know, just as you know, uh, a whole heap of your listeners probably used Zoom 
for the first time, you know, in the past two or three weeks, um, you know, these things are going to have implications on how people, uh, how people, you know, interact in the in the future. Um, but what is interesting is we, we're definitely seeing consumers still spend online, um, and in some categories like athleisure, actually increase their their spending and, and increase it pretty significantly. Um, what we don't know is um, how long that stays true. Uh, if economic conditions really do deteriorate. But but right now, online has been, you know, fairly resilient. Yeah, that's interesting because I've been talking about that too with um, you're seeing a, a faster adoption of, of shopping online across the board, especially when it comes to grocery and pharmacy items that that, that didn't have big adoption here in the U.S. And, and you see that quickly change because people are making the choice, do I feel comfortable going outside um, or do I want to just get my food? So... Um, and the other thing is surprising that you mentioned is is apparel because, you know, I, I, I personally like I'm I'm feeling a little trigger shy when I'm like, ooh, do I really need that? Um, and I do feel like a lot of people are probably waiting for sales and discounts too now because they know that brands are going to have to get out of inventory um, and they could wait for deals. So it's going to be interesting too to see how that reshapes you know, consumer sent, um, psychology, like, do I wait for deals now? Um, and how they balance that out? I, I think that's a really interesting point. So when we say that there um, has been a surprising resilience in, in online sales, you know, what I don't know yet is how much of that is being driven by heavy discounting. So, you know, if you look at retailers like Everlane, you know, this week they announced a site-wide 25% discount. I don't think they've ever done that before. So, um, uh, what we're, what is unclear at the moment is how much of this consumer demand is being inflated by discounting. I, I think it's, I think a, a portion of it must be. You know, consumers are, are probably expecting discounts given the current economic uh, environment. Um, so what what we don't know really is you know how long this stays resilient for. You know, if there's a quick recovery, um, things will things will likely be okay. But you know, if, if it drags on, you know, overall spending both online and, and in store might uh, might decline uh, precipitously. For sure. And it's interesting, you're kind of seeing it in different industries. So you, you have a good vantage point being that you're involved in, you know, apparel and beauty and home and um, because beauty on the flip side, right? Um, I feel makeup probably isn't as high of a need, but you know, there's a lot of DIY beauty happening at home. And if I think of skincare and hair care and other areas, um, there's probably um, support of spend because people can't go to the nail salon, they can't go to the hair salon, ex- they can't, you know, go get a facial, and, and they want to do some of those things for self care at home. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it is interesting, right? Because you see two things through, through our data, right? So one is, uh, of course, um, uh, we see uh, total spend. So you know, if a, if a consumer was spending a hundred dollars three weeks ago, what are they what are they spending today? But you also see um, how that you know hundred dollars is allocated changing pretty significantly, uh, and it would be fair to say uh, in almost every category, um, spending has dropped, with the exception of apparel and cosmetics. So um, consumers online are still spending roughly the same amount, but the the way they're allocating that spend has changed pretty significantly. So all of those other categories, uh, like for example, ticketing, home and garden. Uh, entertainment, for example, all of those categories are down. Um, uh, apparel, cosmetics, accessories is up, um, uh, and I think that you know, to, to your point, might be that you know people are staying at home. Some of those uh, larger, you know, consumer electronics, for example, is down. You know, maybe some of those larger one-off purchases people are holding off, uh, and instead they're buying, you know, makeup, 
shirts, whatever it is, uh, in part driven by that that heavy discounting. Yeah, there was an interesting uh, stat that came out. I believe it was um, from Walmart, but tops, they're seeing an increase in sales of tops, not so much bottoms. And the, the joke is that's because of Zoom. <laughs> uh, we got to be ready for the that. Zoom. That's very funny. <laughs> That's very, very funny. I'm sure that's the case. Um, so, so okay. So you have an interesting vantage point for a couple of reasons. One, you work across these different um, verticals, but also, you know, the way in which the touch points, right? So there's in-store, which right now, for the most part, is on shutdown um, here in the U.S. And then there's e-commerce and then there's social shopping. So can you talk about kind of what you've seen in this, you know, kind of work from home period as far as the shift going from in-store to say social shopping and how do you see that evolving in the coming months? Yeah, it's interesting. Look, I think um, um, a lot of retailers are going to use um, this this period of, you know, the, basically the, the physical stores not being opened to actually, you know, accelerate plans that they had uh, around, you know, um, uh, point of sale in store. So, you know, we, we have already heard anecdotally uh, about um, uh, larger retailers that were prioritizing um, solutions like Alipay, for example, um, uh, prioritizing instead uh, offering a, a buy now, pay later solution at the point of sale. And, and the reason for that being, you know, um, an expectation that um, that tourism isn't going to pick back up as quickly as, you know, domestic spending will. So I think a lot of, um, a lot of retailers are actually using the fact that people aren't in stores to, to really think about um, what is the strategic, you know, priorities that they have for, um, for point of sale uh, and for the physical retail experience. Um, I, I definitely think um, that this whole experience has accelerated or prioritised for a lot of retailers the importance of, of online. So I, I think for a lot of larger uh, retailers where um, they were sort of reluctantly dragged to online, uh, it, it's their only revenue revenue driver at the moment. So I really do think it's accelerated um, the importance of online. And I think that's going to be one of these lasting changes that, that comes out the back of this. And I think related to that is an acceleration of the importance of things like social selling, for example, like utilising tools like Instagram uh, as a primary channel for uh, for retail sales. And uh, I think for a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, that's their sort of their bread, bread and butter. But I do think for a lot of more traditional retailers there who – it wasn't that they weren't embracing it. It's just that, you know, you're always going to gravitate towards your – your, your larger revenue streams now that they're, you know, on hold. I think it's really put the focus on some of these important tactics and I think it'll accelerate their growth. For sure. Um, I think so. Uh, this may ca- catch you off guard, but um, from maybe some of your clients or a brand out there, who do you think is like doing a good job at it that they're integrating social? Because the other thing is live commerce, right? And, and, and all of that. And any that you can point out that you think, adopted really quickly and, and was able to pivot and um, activate their social channels, create community um, and integrate sales? Oh, yeah, good question. Good question. I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I mean, we're, we're, we're very fortunate in the sense that you know, we work with about 4,000 retailers um, and the overwhelming majority would be direct to consumer. And um, I, I'm trying to think of a, a single example that, that you know, makes a heap of sense to, to call out, but we work with a bunch of you know, great retailers like you know, the, the Mansa Gabrielles of the world who are just, you know, these very dynamic direct-to-consumer uh, brands. And I think the, I think it's one that they just, they're just more nimble by nature. You know, they're, they're, they're much quicker to sort of like uh, roll with the punches, for example. Um, uh, they're smaller, more dynamic organisations, probably have less bureaucracy. I think a lot of those uh, direct-to-consumer brands have been very, very successful in um, engaging their communities. Um, a lot of them um, 
uh, are immediately sort of like overlaying uh, not just the um, uh, you know discount strategy or whatever it is, but they're they're, they're putting into place a um, uh, almost like a a uh, you know a philanthropic angle to whatever they're trying to do, or a um, uh, you know a, a way of like uh, pitching to their customers that feels authentic. You know, we work with Lunia, for example. It's a it's a great D to C sort of like um, sleepwear brand. Um, you know, you can see uh, a really good avenue for for someone like Lunia to in, a, in, in an authentic way sort of pivot a little bit to, you know, loungewear that you would wear at home, for example. Uh, I think some of the bigger retailers have taken a little bit longer, but, you know, if I just look at a Nike uh, and some of their branding uh, and some of the campaigns they've been doing recently, and we work with Nike in a whole bunch of the regions we're active, I think they, again, have done a really, really good job of sort of like overlaying um, uh, an important social message about whether or not that's, you know, stay at home, for example, with, um, with, um, a retail strategy, which is, geez, athletes is going to be big now. How do we, how do, how do we benefit from that? Um, so I think there's a couple that have done really, really well, but um, I think it's the larger retailers that are just a little bit slower to 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 move. And and in fairness, I get it right because they're you know they're carrying a huge headcount. Eighty five percent of the revenue has just been turned off. You know, there's a lot of those guys are just in cash conservation mode at the moment, and that's probably taking up the majority of their time. For sure. There's a lot to juggle and, and thinking through. You go into crisis management and it's hard to always be on the offensive when you're on the defensive a bit. But I do agree. I think Nike, they're phenomenal when it comes to messaging and kind of thinking on their feet. I love what they put out, I believe, a week ago. Um, if you ever dreamed of playing for millions yeah. around the world, now is your chance. And that's play inside, play for the world. It's pretty powerful. Yeah, um, it is pretty powerful. So uh, I have a couple, two more questions. Um, and then we can get to one fun one before we log off. But how, as you're saying, brands are realizing they have to kind of up their game for online, right? We do know stores are going to open at some point and it's human nature to want to interact and be with others. And so, you know, things might show up a little bit differently, but I, I do think if you polled people right now, they still would say, I can't wait to go to uh, get my hair done or I can't wait to go to an event. I can't wait to be with my friends. And so how do you see brands and retailers evolving their approach to omni-channel retail, right? Because they're going to lean into uh, a more robust approach to online, but but in-store isn't going to go away, it may just change. So how do you see that evolving, that connection? Yeah, I, I totally agree that agree with that. No, I'm super bullish on in-store. I mean, again, you know, we work with a lot of D2Cs um, or direct-to-consumer brands, and it is the absolute sort of ambition or the end goal for every one of those direct-to-consumer brands to open their own physical retail store. You know, for, for the overwhelming majority of them, that's what success looks like. Um, so uh, I think there's always going to be a really important role for physical retail. I always think physical retail is going to be the, the, um, you know, the, the, the majority of the business for uh, for the way in which people shop and interact and for all of those social reasons that you said, there is some something powerful about being able to see an item, touch it and feel it. Um, in, in terms of what, what the implications are for, for retailers, you know, th there's not a retailer that we speak to today that doesn't realise the importance of, you know, a unified experience for a customer. Uh, and I think um, for a whole heap of reasons, you know, many of them technical and many of them, you know, just purely uh, due to legacy, uh, legacy systems, um, the experience for a customer online is very, very commonly different to the experience for a customer in store. You know, if you if you send send a package back, uh, you can get a refund to a credit card. If you go in store, they're going to have to refund you via a gift card. Now, that's a that's a strange, you know, certainly ununified experience for for a customer. Uh, and uh, the the reason for it is, you know, changing um, uh, physical point of sale systems across, you know. 
600 retail locations is a big, expensive, laborious task. Um, Replatforming to a new um, uh, e-commerce system, while still challenging and time-consuming, you know, in comparison is much, much easier. So I think the concept of that unified experience, uh, I think, is increasingly very, very important that for a customer, it doesn't matter if they're buying online or in-store, you know, they're they're shopping with a brand and, and they want that experience to be consistent. And I think what's interesting, again, is, you know, there are a whole heap of retailers uh, who are doing that very, very well. So, you know, I think about, uh, you know, I, I live in New York uh, and I think anybody who wants to know what sort of the future of retail looks like, you know, go to go to Nike in New York, go to Apple in New York, um, uh, go to Nordstrom, the new Nordstrom uh, shop in New York, and you get a sense for what that unified experience is like for a customer. And, and I think it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, if you want to know what cars will look like in in 10 years' time, drive a sort of a, a Mercedes today. Uh, I think um, all of those retailers are a really good example of that. You want to know what sort of like um, true omni-channel unified experience looks like for a customer and, you know, in five years' time, you know, visit some of these retailers that are doing a really good job of it today. I agree. I agree. I, I, I try to put it on my list to make sure that I'm getting out into the streets and, and being able to see some of these experiences. And although what some of them have accomplished on the bigger scale, right, the Nikes of the world, not every brand could could pull that off. But I think they could take a lot of inspiration from, you know, the essence of it and, and leaning into things like personalization. And, you know, they were one of the first movers in integrating the in-app purchase while you're in store and um, and so it's great to have some of those leaders that continue to push the industry forward. On that note, uh, one thing you mentioned a little earlier, and I do think it's, be- it's, I mean, it is very much in the spotlight right now is a brand's mission for social responsibility as well, right? Because we're, we're at a point where a lot of them are seeing hits to their business, but they're stepping up and they're joining the fight and they're utilizing their resources in a different way. And, um, and, and so I, I see as a company, you have a mission of social responsibility um, to be climate neutral. Um, so tell me, tell me about that and how you guys are looking to help achieve that. Yeah, I, I would love, I would love to talk about that. And, and just before I jump into it, you know, you made a good point, which is, um, uh, you know, not every brand can replicate what what Nike does. And you know, one of the things that I would say, and I think it actually ties into, you know, our sense of purpose is um, providers like ours, you know, technology companies like ours, you know, in, in part we exist to. Um, close the delta between a small brand or a large legacy brand uh, and Nike. You know, we, we actually see part of our part of our goal is how do we uh, create tools that make it easier for a retailer to replicate, you know, the experiences that a, that, that a Nike can offer. And, you know, that's not just us. That's a, that's a whole heap of, you know, technology providers in the uh, in the industry. It's about how do you close that sort of that delta between these, you know, ultra successful retailers and up and coming retailers or legacy retailers trying to reinvent their businesses. And we, we, we feel really strongly about being a partner uh, in the in the retail industry to make, make those sorts of transitions easier. Uh, in terms of sort of our, our social mission, um, you know, if you think about, uh, like I said, what's the, the sort of the unifying characteristic of our of our customers, right? Um, and you could almost say it's that they're very distrustful of traditional financial institutions. Um, and if you think about Klarna, like Klarna is actually a bank. You know, we're a regulated bank uh, overseas. Um, you know, we're, we're a fintech, we're a financial institution, but we very early on made the decision to almost sort of position ourselves as a as a rebel bank. You know, we, uh, we wanted to create a brand um, that really resonated with our consumers. Uh, and they're overwhelmingly young, uh, they're overwhelmingly uh, um, uh, socially conscious. They're overwhelmingly concerned about the environment, uh, and we really wanted to make sure that we, uh, in a very authentic way, could b- 
build a brand uh, that resonated with them. Uh, so uh, if you look at our colors, it's sort of like a bright pink. Uh, if you look at every other financial institution in the world, they're blue. The reason they're blue is blue is safe. Um, uh, we wanted to think differently. And, and part of that, you know, aspiration to think differently is, you know, is thinking really, really seriously about, you know, uh, our uh, role in the community. Uh, and one of the ways that sort of manifested is uh, through our uh, ambition to be climate neutral. So by the end of this year, we'll be a climate neutral uh, uh, company, uh, financial institution. We think that's really, really important. We think that reflects the, you know, the, the values and the ambitions of the, the customers who, who use us. That's amazing. I couldn't agree more. Um, here at uh, Lioness Group, who is an MG2 company, we have a sustainability goal for, we have a little longer way, 2030, but uh, wanting to be a partner to help all of our clients build sustainable environments. Um, and we have a strong commitment to to do that, um, although it might take us a decade to fully get there. Um, but we're looking at the materiality of things and and just h- how we how we be more conscious about that. So I think that that's great that people are leaning into that. Um, it's interesting that the way of the world right now is actually I think pe- making people think about it even more. Yeah, totally agree. And even if you look at you know some of the some of the brands that that we partner with, um, you know there there is. You know, clearly whether it is um, uh, sort of like the, the, the secondary marketplaces that are emerging or brands like uh, Allbirds or, or Everlane that are, you know, very sustainably uh, minded, you know, it, it's really, really clear there is a um, an entire generation of young people who, who are um, uh, emerging into leadership positions who take this stuff really, really seriously. Uh, and for, for, for brands like us, if we want to, you know, um, enjoy the business of those consumers, right? Like we, we've got, we've got to step up to. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a genuine expectation that uh, that corporations, fintechs, technology providers, whatever it is, you know, actually sort of walk the walk the talk when it comes to these sorts of things. So it, it's something we take really seriously. That's great. Well, this has been a great discussion. Uh, it's interesting all the points of view you have because, as you mentioned at Klarna, you work with a vast array of, of brands and retailers from D to C to 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 mass retail and um, and then across verticals. And I think the world's going to continue to evolve, and I'm sure the data will continue to evolve, um, and we're going to continue to see data points come out of that. Um, but while uh, before we go, while we aren't able to all travel and you are from Australia. One thing I'd like to ask you is, um, maybe we start with a virtual trip, but when I do get the time, um, and it is possible to travel the world again, what are the three places that I should go in Australia? Yeah, look, it's a, that, that's a really tough question, right? And, and I should say, I, I grew up in Sydney, so I'm, 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 I'm quite biased about where I would suggest that you should, uh, you should head in Australia. Um, and look, if I, if I had to sort of pin it down to sort of three things that I, that I think you should do. And I'm, and I'm trying to be um, um, as unbiased as possible. So I'll, I'll, I'll be a bit um, dispersed geographically. I think uh, to head to Australia and not go to a beach is, is an absolute crime. Uh, and, you know, I, I've been very fortunate to, to travel, you know, qu- quite a few places. And it's the one thing I, I could say that I've, I've never seen replicated, you know, just the, the quality of beaches in Australia. So um, whether it's uh, my personal favourite beach, um, which was Tamarama in, in Sydney, which was sort of, uh, uh, one or two beaches down from from Bondi, which you know most people will be familiar with, but there's almost nowhere you can go in Australia uh, uh, from a coastal perspective, and, and there's not going to be a fantastic beach. And so that would you know have to be my my number one thing to suggest. Um, two, 
I think what surprises a lot of uh, Americans in particular is just how good wine in Australia is. Uh, they've been uh, extraordinarily fortunate to have a whole heap of, you know, amazing uh, wine regions. Um, and uh, whether it's, you know, um, uh, the Hunter Valley or the McLaren Valley uh, or Geelong, uh, uh, I would definitely try and get to a, a wine region, uh, a whole heap of great wine regions in, in South Australia, for example, some some great, great wine regions in, in WA. But Australia does have some of the best wine in the world and, and some of the best wine regions. So that would sort of be, be number two because it will also give you a really different uh, flavour for Australia. Uh, and, and number three, and it is um, – uh, it is um, – uh, almost a cliche, but if you have the opportunity to get out into the outback, um, uh, you know, that's something you should definitely experience. It is uh, otherworldly is the only way I could describe it. It's um, such a core component of Australia's sort of like culture and ethos and, you know, really, uh, really central to our DNA. But if you can get out, uh, whether it's, you know, the, the Kimberley in WA or whether or not it's sort of uh, Northern Territory and, and Ayers Rock or whether or not it's... Uh, uh, Western New South Wales, you know, if you, if you have the opportunity to get into the outback, uh, it, it's a it's a really interesting experience and, and something I'd recommend to anyone. Well, there you have it. I mean, I have my itinerary set. I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to drink some wine. I'm going to go to the outback. Um, maybe meet a kangaroo. I'm not sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, but that sounds good. I think we all need some inspiration right now um, because travel will pick up again. And I think we could all kind of make some exciting agendas for the future. Yeah, 100%. David, it was great having you again. This is David Sykes. He's the head of US for Klarna, one of Europe's largest banks offering direct payments. This is a very insightful conversation of the, of the way of not only the world today, but how we see it to continue to evolve in retail. So thank you for joining us and um, we'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Have a great day, okay?